Welcome to In Her Image, a podcast where we seek and celebrate our Heavenly Mother through scripture, scholarship, and everyday life. I'm your host, Meg Ritmanick, and today we are finishing our four-part series on the ancient myth of Inanna. We're going to be diving into the symbols of the underworld and what that means for us personally to come out of a place like that and make our own ascension into a fully embodied human being. I'm so excited to have this conversation with Pam England because she is full of so much wisdom, and I'm hoping that we can all glean something important from the story for ourselves. Pam, we are so grateful for all the work that you've been doing with us, and I'm really excited to hear what else you have to share with us today. So I'm hoping that this one of the things that uh, I enjoy talking to you about is how to make these bring these stories not as oh that's what happened. It's a beautiful story, either anon or biblical or otherwise. But we have to bring these things into action. Right. Into our own lives and ask ourselves, like, what does that mean? How can I do that in my life? And how can I make it meaningful and make it a spiritual work as much as a physical work? Exactly. So how do we make our experience in the underworld a spiritual work? So if you could think of the underworld nowadays as your um whatever we've put in the underworld is something that we've buried. We we don't we don't want to identify with it or be identified by it. We're ashamed of it. Um we disown it. We we disown this part of ourselves. But at some point in our life we are forced to come face to face with a thing that we think we shouldn't be or do the thing we shouldn't do or feel the thing we're not supposed to feel however we were conditioned as children you know whatever the rules were when we were growing up and when we actually do the thing say the thing feel the thing we're not supposed to it causes a crack in our identity in our shell in our armor in our mask and we're actually shocked when we see it oh my god i did that i shouldn't have done that but once it's cracked it's cracked and now This is the most profound thing. Uh, Carl Jung was, I think, the one who who showed us this. Is the whole purpose is to reclaim, reown, you know, the part of us we've denied. Some part, not the whole part. We can't in one journey. We're not going to reclaim all of the parts that we buried and disowned, but one or two of them we will. And what happens when you own the part of you that you disowned or denied, you become actually more complete, more whole. You're more able to be the person you were meant to be or do the thing you were born to do. And so long as you are denying that, it's it's like you're split. Not only are you split, but when you look out, the world is your mirror, so, so say the Buddhist. Whenever you see someone doing, saying, feeling the thing that you can't say, do, or feel, you know what happens. You judge them, or you try to coerce them or change them to have the same role that you have, because if you can't do it, they shouldn't do it, because they're reminding you of the thing you want to do or need to do, and you can't do it because you shouldn't do it. And So it becomes sort of a, a, a complication in, in loving yourself and loving the world. So you know the teaching is to love yourself first to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you have to first love yourself to love your neighbor. And these journeys bring us to the place of accepting the part of us we've always denied. 
or doing the thing we thought we couldn't or shouldn't do and surviving it and realizing, well, I'm still here and I'm okay. And in fact, that was pretty helpful to do that. I'm bigger. I can do that too instead of all these things we can't do. So anyway, I hope I haven't over-explained that. What is the meaning of hanging on a hook? And what are some things that we can do to maybe practice that in our life? The hanging on the hook, the hook itself could be a peg, could be, could be a wooden peg. It could be, if it's, if it's one of these metal hooks that looks like this, you know, you know, the, the hook itself, because it's got a piercing end is masculine, but this S shape like this, if you imagine this kind of hook, is feminine. So it's kind of the masculine feminine symbol. But this hook pierces us in some place in our body, and the piercing itself is part of the symbol of it. Where it pierces you in your body is symbolic, and again, ambiguous, whatever meaning we give it. But when we're pierced, we're forced to hold still and to hang. And as you embody this, your feet cannot touch the ground. You cannot stand up for yourself. You can't stand for what you believe. You cannot run away. You're hanging. Very powerful. And if you wriggle on the hook, it will hurt more. And if you try to lift yourself off, gravity won't let you. You can't. So the most powerful woman in Sumer, the priestess of seven temples, the warrior queen, couldn't lift herself off that, like Jesus off the cross. We can't lift ourselves off the hook, though the hook isn't a moment of indecision or I'm not sure what to do, or I felt kind of like it was a hard moment. It's not a sing-songy kind of moment that was hard. No. People often misuse the hook for those kinds of things that happen to them, and it's wrong. The hook is when you are brought to your knees. You're completely shattered. You don't know what to do, what to think, who you are, where to go, how it happened. Who to try? You don't know. It's 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 the moment. It's dying before you die. It's the moment. If you're spiritual, you want in your life, and you're blessed if you get it. Now, so she has to hang there, and in the original story, there's a line that says um, something. The translation is something like um, an honor turn to. Um, um, she was rotting and dripping green, some some kind of a connotation like that, and her eyes popped out. It was quite graphic, actually. Um, so she she was naked. Her hair was matted, and it it uh, hung like leaks around her head. You know, just crazy. She was a mess. I think that the Sumerians it feels to me they were almost referring to the green goo of a chrysalis when you're not a caterpillar and you're not yet a butterfly. You're green goo in this in this chrysalis and if it's touched it won't turn into a butterfly. So it must stay there for its prescribed amount of time. And any rescuing of it 
the, the initiation is incomplete. This is incredibly significant. So many times I hear moms say in the, in the journey of birth that they want to get back to their old lives, to their old selves. And I understand what they mean. But if we are to mentor them, and the story is to mentor them, they will know that they can never come back to their former selves. It's impossible. And that shouldn't be something to strive for, but to be born again into your new self. And this takes weeks, months, years. It doesn't take six weeks. And it's not something that we do with our minds. It's something that happens almost for us and to us. But our awareness of it allows us to participate in it and support its happening. But our ego doesn't make it happen. But allowing time to contemplate the process, maybe artwork, being in nature, personal rituals of contemplation and reflection, maybe encourage it. But I feel it's important to say that it's not done psychologically, it's done spiritually. At any rate, I would like to say a little bit more about that liminal space, can I? Yeah, for sure. In, um, in, this, uh, in mythology and in, in the Inanna story or any experience we have, that is going to become initiatory. So the word lemon represents a threshold, and it represents a threshold that's like going into death, which then it goes into rebirth. Um, but in the liminal space in mythology, we possess nothing. We we are naked. We we are often dismembered, uh, disrobed first, and then dismembered, which is um, we we are separated from our role in life. We there's nobody there with us or to support us or take care of us, and. Um, it's another way you could think of it is to is to be in the belly of the whale, and you imagine when you're crossing the threshold of a of a whale, of a going into a whale, you're definitely going. It's a threshold of death, um, and you can't rescue yourself, and you can't be rescued. Rescued, so there's going to be great chaos and confusion, uncertainty. Um, and in the, in the in in the liminal space, all of the social structures you are familiar with, or you depended on to make things make sense, and hierarchies, and all of that is gone. And that is what makes you feel so lost. Like, where am I? How did I get here? How do I get out of here? You feel completely lost. And what happens in that liminal space when you know nothing and you are nothing is you find that still point and you begin to, all of your senses begin to open up. And you begin to listen with the inner ear. And you begin to see with the inner eye. And you begin to sense with your whole body. Your whole body comes alive. 
And there's a kind of knowing that begins to come into you very slowly in the place of not knowing, knowing, not knowing, knowing, sensing, feeling, stepping softly forward, being still, stepping, moving. And there's just this kind of uh, like being a newborn baby where everything is new to you. Nothing is familiar. And that's when you can see and know something you've not known before. And the only way to get you there is to disrobe and dismember you. Now there's a story from the Inuits where um, the healer in their village, uh, shaman, died. And they needed to find a new shaman. And it's not like in those cultures you can just say, I want to be a shaman. You have to be chosen by the people. And somehow the people just can see around them who has the capacity to do this. So they chose this 16-year-old boy. And they took him to the underworld. And first they cut off his head. This is symbolic, of course. Cut off his head and they put it on a shelf so he could watch his initiation. When you're in the liminal space, you're kind of watching your initiation. Like the man who who was uh, who met a bear, took hold of his skull and crushed it. He could hear his skull being crushed. He was facing his death. He couldn't do a damn thing about it. So he was literally witnessing his body being bitten in 36 places, or the man who was swallowed by a hippo three times, and then he survived. Completely helpless, completely out of his element, taken to the bottom of the water, opening his eyes and seeing the water, wondering who would be, who could hold the, the breath longer, he or the hippo. Nothing he could do but surrender. I mean, surrender is not something we do with our, in a sentence, I'm going to surrender. Surrender comes into us as a grace from God. And it's that still point between life and death, sacred moment. And there's nothing more you can do. And it's not in your hands what you will have. So this voice had his cut off, and he can watch his dismemberment. And his body is chopped up by these, shall we call them, malevolent spirits. And the pieces are left all over the floor. In the dark. In the night. The long night of the soul. Then the benevolent spirits come in and they pick up his pieces and they rearrange him so that no two pieces are touching. I'm not sure why this is, but the relevance is, of this is, but it's a beautiful piece. It's very specific. All of his body is put together so no two pieces are touching. And then the song is sung over him and he is brought back to life. So you are shattered in the liminal space. Your mind is shattered. Your whole construct of who you are and what life is is shattered. And you cannot put yourself back together. It is by grace that you'll be put back together. And then on a story, it's by the two allies. His body is put back together. And he ascends back up to the world. He's welcomed by the people. And this is the part that really touched me. And it touched my life because it's what happened to me. It was the medicine in the 
in a uh, benevolent spirit that put them together that became this shaman's strongest medicine for healing people. So when I was shattered and shocked by my birth experience, more so than most people because it was my destiny to be that way. My experience wasn't that much more dramatic, but my reaction to it was. My medicine then was given to me by the benevolent spirits who put me back together, and I, I became a birth story uh, healer. Yes. I, I, I can't work with anything else as well as I can with the thing that healed me, which was my... I was, so, you know, the idea is we think we have to heal our cancer story, or we have to heal our marriage story, or we have to heal our childhood. I had to heal my birth story. But you know what I learned at the end of my journey? I learned that, no, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And I couldn't have known it till the very end of my journey, is that the thing that broke me is the thing that healed me. I couldn't heal my birth story. My birth experience healed me from many things and made me whole. And that's how this thing works. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you've got me all emotional because there's so much truth in that. That is so beautiful. And I see it within like my own story and how what broke me is healing me and how those, how my divine team helped bless me. Yes. And when, when, when we flip the pancake, I call it, then we're cooked. <laughs> yeah. Until then, we're half raw, but we don't know it. So Anana hangs there, and um, remember that she, being a warrior queen, one of the attributes of an archetypal warrior is that they're strategic. So that she, even Anana knew, she said, give me three days and three nights. Don't come earlier, because I may not be done in my transfiguration. Some way she knew that. She was a priestess, so she must have seen other initiations. Are you following? Yes, and I find that so very interesting. I feel like there's some parallels there with the story of Christ, actually. You know, he knew he was going to die. He also had a confidant that understood what was about to happen, and her name was Mary Magdalene. Mary, before Christ died, came to Jesus and washed his feet with her tears. Yeah, and and she blessed him. She knew what was about to happen. She knew that he was about to die, and she performed the ceremonies for him to prepare him for that journey that he was about to go on. So... That's the spirit of this. This is what we're talking about. This is exactly what, but it's a conscious intention to have this ceremony. And they know that they're going to go as far as they can with their warrior skills and their uh, courage and their determination. But that there are human limits. And when they reach those limits and they can't go any further, they know that they need to create a backup to come support them and save them so that they can continue their journey. So she made part of the, the one of the tasks of preparation for a warrior archetype 
is to prepare for your demise, prepare for your return. So before she left, she told Ninjabert, three days and three nights, if I don't come back, go to the three fathers and get me help to come back. She wasn't arrogant to think, I'm a, I'm a warrior queen, the priestess of the heaven temples, I don't need any help. She wasn't like that. That is a powerful, that's a very powerful teaching in the story. Yeah, and it's interesting because I just kind of saw a parallel in the tradition that I am a part of, of like God prepared before we came here a way for us to return back to God. God knew that we were going to fail, that we were going to have these hardships, that we were going to make mistakes, that we were going to experience pain and that we were going to need to heal. And so God, our Heavenly Mother and our Heavenly Father, they created this plan for us to be able to return back to them and put a Savior in place um, as Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it's a similar story. It is a similar story, and when I first learned Anana being raised Catholic, and also the 12 stations in the Catholic Church that I, we did, yeah. I said, wow, there's, there's, a, there's a similar pattern here. Yeah. You know? Isn't that beautiful how they're, like, they're all so connected? They're very connected. And, and I, I kind of just got chills. I mean, even though... It's been so long. I still am so in touch with the the power of this this thread. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're all inspired by the divine, right? They are. They're just a different story to help see it from a different perspective or get unstuck from that child. Uh, know how we talked about like you you grow up with the rules and your childlike perspective of how things work. Sometimes you need these other stories from other cultures to break you out of that and to be able to see the truth of the story. Exactly. They're in It's all a divine plan. It's all yeah. part of the divine plan. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I have a tendency to, to just sense that there is, there is a destiny, a plan. And for me, it, it's a great comfort. I go, well, I mean, it's a great, great comfort to me. Yes, absolutely. I'm planning it. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I can pretend, but I'm not sure that that's true. So when Anana is hanging there, nobody helps her and nobody can hear her. But she's not doing nothing. She's going through transfiguration, which is actually referred to as what Christ went through. He went through not a transformation, not an insight. He went through a transfiguration, which means his whole body, mind, soul, and nervous system, everything changed. And that's a very unusual um, thing. And that's the, I, don't know if I, said, I don't mean to say unusual. To that degree, it would be unusual. But I mean, for human beings who I think are supported in and understand this is possible, and they stay with it a little bit longer, a little bit longer on the hook. I think it's possible for many human beings to have to have uh, 
you know, they call them the hero stories or in, in biographies, like when people have a, or, or post-traumatic growth is the new, there's a book on post-traumatic growth, or um, Victor, Victor Frankl, right. when he's in the concentration camp, and then he wrote the book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. These kinds of experiences that could make you better and traumatized for life, instead, make you understand something and bring it to others. But it requires a rewiring for that to be potent enough and last the rest of your life and not just be an insight. So there she is on the hook in the dark, and uh, she's essentially dead. I mean, uh, like whether she's, uh, I don't know if she has any thoughts or she screams for help and no one hears her. I don't know if any of that ever happened. You can, you can again, adjust the story to make it meaningful to you. But she cannot get off that hook on her own. That you cannot change. That cannot happen. So by and by, up in the upper world, I love this part. I'll make it brief because it's a whole myth within a myth by itself. But her ninshaber has watched the sun and the moon, and she knows it's now been three days. And she be, she begins to beat the drum in the upper world. And I like to imagine that in the underworld, the vibration of the drum beating as she walked around the temples, and not as in the underworld, that she could hear the beating like a heart up there. Beating, beating. And then she cries her name over and over. She wails her name. You hear your name. Your soul responds to your name. She begins to quicken. This is what I feel. So it's important to have somebody in a, when you're in the underworld, when you've been in a great shot, call your name and beat the drum for you to quicken your heart. Not necessarily rescue you too soon. But. And this is, you know, we hear the call from below to come to the below. We, call, we hear the call from the buried part of ourselves, the unlived part of ourselves, calls us to go live something we haven't lived or been said, expressed, right? And now we're in the underworld, so what calls us? Someone on the above calls us from the underworld so we don't get stuck down there because that would mean an incomplete initiation. And that happens to a lot of people. So we're being called back this way. She hears it. She, she's quickened. But she can't get her up. She still can't get herself off the hook, but she's quickened. Now, this, the short version of this is as you, as you, as you heard, uh, you know, uh, she goes to the three fathers, two who have not been to the underworld can't help her because they don't know the way. They've never been to the underworld, but they blame Anana for getting herself in this pickle in the first place. And they think it's her problem and her fault. And they're not going to help her. And of course, we know that this happens to people when they've gotten themselves into pickles. There's always somebody who judges it. And it's only because they haven't been initiated in it. Someone who's been initiated it goes, what, what? And they know what to do because they've been initiated. That's all that means. It's not like a human. You could judge that person, but if you're not initiated in something, you're just not initiated in it, and that's how that goes. Right? That's your fault. Yeah, that's beautiful c clarification because 
sometimes we are super judgmental of others. And yeah, we are. <laughs> well, that's because that part, what somebody else is being initiated in, we still have in our underworld, we still reject it in ourselves. So we're going to reject it in you because you're reminding me that I I reject myself. You're, you're my mirror and you're doing the thing I can't let myself do. Right. It's still in my underworld, so I haven't made that journey yet. So I'm going to judge you because you're bothering me. You're reminding me of something I shouldn't do. But we can't see that until we're initiated, of course, and then we can't. But anyway, so the third the third uh, friend is called Enki. He's uh, the god of wisdom. And he says, tell me what happened to my daughter, basically. Anyway, but... Um, so uh, I think I'm going to stop here because I'm going to be telling the story. So I'll, I'll just go. Do you want me to talk about the, the food of life and the water of life? Yeah. So, yeah, because we will, I mean, we're going to have the story. So, yeah, then we just need to talk about how he sent the demons down, right? Because in the translation, it's demons. But, like, maybe you talk about them. Oh. I call them allies because demons sometimes has a connotation of, for some people, the devil. Um, right. Has a different meaning in, historically, but. Well, and I had read a translation of that that said that during that time and period that demon actually didn't mean like devil. It just meant a fallen divine person. Like a person that was no longer divine, that could, and they could not make that uh, descent while being divine. Um, oh, that. Mm-hmm. Well, since and since you brought that translation, we can use that word. Um, so there's two, and they bring the water of life and the food of life. Now, um. So, in terms of making the story, like bringing ritual to your reenactment of the story, if if you are going through, uh, if you've gone through an ordeal and you're on the return, or you've been on the hook, you've been lost, and suddenly you're starting to feel like, you know, again, the quickening, you're coming back. The water of life, to me, this isn't written, um, just something I just, I just, um, I, I made an association with the water of life for me is the spiritual spiritual medicine someone could bring or we could give ourselves to restore ourselves. So it may not be actual water, holy water, but um, it represents uh, a spiritual restoration. And I think of the times I've been uh, really recovering from uh, a couple of times. Uh, very serious um, initiations um, through one was blood cancer, the other one was my uh, cesarean. You don't just have a little drink and then you're back upstairs, you know. (laughs) So I began to think of it as a titration of little sips, little sips, like a ceremony, a ritual of every day a sip, you know, or uh, giving, sometimes you have to give it to yourself or Sometimes other people can can give it to you if you invite them to do it. 
and you were and even if your former rule was I don't like to get any help, I don't like to bother anybody, I don't want to impose on anybody, maybe through your initiation, you've broken that rule and you can now have help. <laughs> so that could be one of the things that can happen. But you may need to have someone help give you some water of life, whatever that is for you. And the food of life for me is the kinds of things that restore the body. It could be actual physical good food during a recovery. Um, it could be body, body care, massage, or other kinds of healing modalities and treatments, sleep. But there has to be a conscious intention and effort because the body has had a great shock uh, and the mind has had a great shock to, to be restorative in this way, not to get back to normal, but to restore just this physical body that's containing the initiation. To create an environment around you too that's restorative. I think the urge to get back to normal in this culture is is uh everything's fast. Well, it is miss it's just really missing the point. It, it takes a while to integrate what's just happened. And during this time, when it, you, you begin to make the ascent, and there are certain tasks you do, after you've been restored enough to do those tasks, you can't do those tasks when you've just come off the hook. You know, there's, a, there's a phase be, be, before integration, which is the water and the food of life. Yeah. I kind of want to expand on that and just my personal mm. uh, interpretation. Because it's interesting, um, in Christianity, Christ says, like, I am the bread of life. And I think what he really was meaning there is that, like, I can help you find healing, right? If we find the parallel in this story that bread and, and water of life is what brings you back to life. And as we eat of that bread and water, and I love how you made that point of like, we need to do spiritual care and we need to do physical care. And with the combination of the two, you are able to become strong enough to start making the ascent. You cannot make the ascent until you have kind of taken some time to rejuvenate and to care for yourself spiritually and physically. And that's really beautiful. Well, you know, the way you said that reminded me, I love how, how you, you remind me of all these other stories, the way you speak of these things, but there's a story of the Hopi people of the Southwest uh, when traditionally and you can find the story in the book of Hopi by Frank Waters. Um, when a woman gave birth, she went to the birth hut, and she was attended by uh, the midwife or herbalist or just women, that's all. And after she gave birth, she and the baby were kept in darkness for 21 days. So that would be like, you know, literally coming out of the liminal space, but being held there for a little bit longer. And they, she was attended to 
by the women. She was fed and given water, probably massages and whatever healing uh, modalities they had. That that wasn't described in the book. That part wasn't shared. But they um, they would put twenty. Um, uh, there was four walls in the ceiling. And they would put four lines of cornmeal on each of these walls in the ceiling. And every day, one of the lines of cornmeal was taken down so they would know when 20 days had happened. And um, uh, when that happened, she was taken, she would go out at sunrise that morning and she would hold the baby and her mother would go with her and she would hold the baby up to the sun and she would say, Father, this is your child. And then the grandmother would do it also. And then they would denounce to the village, the child has been born, the mother has been born. And then they would go back to the village. But it was it was allowing the nervous system, if you're giving birth is, or getting well after being sick for a long time or any other kinds of transformation experiences we have, there's a shock period. We just have to acknowledge that there's a shock period when something really big happens. Mm-hmm. So they were just to be held and somebody else sort of feeding you while you restore your nervous system. And then you go back to your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all eventually are going to need that healing time in our yeah. lives. Mm-hmm. The thing is that if you've ever been very, very sick, as you start to get well, you're not actually aware that you're in that liminal space of getting well, but you're not quite well. So it's hard for you to call it forth for yourself. It would be nice if we started learning about this when we see someone who's just getting well and say, rather than get a little bit more well, you can go back to work. We could say, before you go back to work, let's spend a week or two weeks consciously creating a space for that transitional period consciously doing it but it has to be supported by somebody on the outside a person who's getting well can't give it to themselves because then they're not resting they're not receiving they're still yeah and i want to add for our listeners sake um i know most of them have entered into a covenant with god to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that are in need of comfort And that is what we're talking about here, is that idea of acting as a savior to those that have just come off that hook and supplying them with that food of life and that water of life. And that's how we fulfill that covenant. And you are really doing this in your own life. It's been a really joyful journey for me to do this. I, I really... I was compelled to do it. I was born to do it. I didn't even, I, I couldn't not do it. And it's been really exciting for me to, to be at this age. And make, I feel so complete. So once Anana is restored uh, enough, she then has to do, she, she can, so here's, this is another one of those threshold moments in this great story. If you stay in the underworld, too long. There's a risk. You know, in these great myths, they say, don't drink the water of the underworld, don't eat in the underworld, even though they have a banquet, because once you eat or you partake of the underworld, you become stuck in the underworld. 
you become part of it and you can't leave. There are always very strict rules in all of the myths. Don't eat the water, don't drink the water, or eat the food in the underworld. This is why they had to bring the food from up there down to Manana. Anyway, so what I wanted to say is that there's a great temptation to want to take the throne of the underworld. You know, Nana was a queen, and she did like power. That was her shtick, you know? <laughs> she sits in that throne. She becomes the queen of the underworld. What does that mean? What does that mean? I've thought about this for a long time. My interpretation is that when we have had a hardship in life, a, a shocking experience, we can become really attached to that story of trauma, unfairness, betrayal, illness, um, whatever it is. You know, every category could fit. And we tell the story over, and we remain blaming and a victim, and we try to get other people to kind of, kind of commiserate with us or join groups that commiserate. We're in the underworld. We're drinking the water, and we're eating the food, and we're dining with others who drink the water. And eat the food. And so we, we become, there are, you know, just as there's power made uh, in the upper world for warriors and queens, you know, the crown and the, all the beautiful uh, jewelry and things that identify us as uh, women of power, there's also uh, made in the underworld of victimhood, of being judgmental, of being righteous, of being proud. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the idea. Yeah. And once we, start to, once we start to put those on, we identify the, the, with them, the journey may end in the underworld instead of finishing it, going back to bring the wisdom to the people. Now you, you take power from your suffering. You take power in your victimization. You take power in your betrayal. What is, why is the owl and the lions, what are those all about? Because I noticed it in both. Well, Nana always has a lion because she was a warrior queen. And so the lion represented like her taming, her being courageous, but also taming the, something wild and ferocious. Hmm. So she's, but this this one here is, uh, this, this is a lion that's two lions together like this. This is like the gateway to the underworld. Hmm. It represents um, death and dying. And um, it also represents uh, rebirth, but the but the owl is in Sumer meant wisdom. It didn't mean I mean not wisdom. It meant death. It meant death and rebirth. So when Anana goes to the underworld, remember I talked about transfiguration. She she goes as the queen as a woman, but because she dies and is reborn. Whoops, a second. Got to turn my. She gets wings. She gets the owl wings. Mm. That's her. That's that shows that she's initiated through death, like that she died and was reborn. I thought that was such an amazing symbol. But um, and inside this painting on the bottom, I don't know if you can see. Should I bring it closer? Yeah, bring it closer. And I'm going to see if I can send you. Oh, I will send you. I won't see. I can do it. I want to. See, she has hollow feet. So she's had also, she's got transfiguration in her feet. 
Let me see if you can see this. I'm going to try and get closer there. If you look at the steps, there's cuneiform, the original writing from Sumer, the first writing of humans. And each of these words actually means something. But she got the the top the talons from the owl. Mm. So this is this is the thing about transfiguration is that when you come back, your your body and nervous system are um, rewired, and um, so during my studies, I looked at Native American stuff, and when someone was initiated, I think it was a Lakota tribe. When someone was initiated, the shaman could tell that they had changed, but a lot of the people in the village wouldn't be able to because they were, they just didn't have the eyes. They weren't maybe themselves initiated at that level. So what the shaman would do is paint them to show the villagers this person has changed and give them a new name, even a new job. You know, down in the Aboriginals in Australia, um, but this is a childbirth-related story also, but I don't know what they do for other Ill kinds of illnesses. But when a woman was initiated through birth, she was considered a warrior. She was isolated for, I think that was 40 days in Australia. And when she was brought back, they painted her whole body white with ash and the baby at white also to show the village, this is an initiated woman. She is now a warrior, an archetypal warrior. And they had to paint her so that people could see she has changed and recognize that. I think this is a really powerful thing. Mm. We should think about how to honor somebody who's gone through an ordeal and untied their knots, untied their stories, broken a rule, did the forbidden thing, and seen the light, so to speak. How can we honor them in a return ceremony? Yeah. Not just because they got through it, but because after years of working on it, they really completed it. So this this was taken from some ancient art that's 5,000 years ago. This, this is a relief. I borrowed this image from a relief that was made 5,000 years ago in Sumer. It was in the English um, the museum, the British Museum. Recognizing those that have been initiated and how can we do that in ceremony, that is really interesting to ponder on because in the tradition that I, like the religious tradition that I'm a part of, we go through an initiation and, or initiatory and um, we're giving a, we're given a garment to wear for the rest of our lives to show that you've gone through that initiatory. And that's really beautiful to think about that as like a showing. That's a very significant, that's a very significant when, when someone sees you and puts you back together again or dresses you so that every time you see that, you're reminded that you've, you're you're a part of something bigger. You have a responsibility. You're, you've been initiated. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful. Yeah, and since you experienced it, you, you you're on the way. You're on the way of becoming an elder, of realizing the feeling and the power. 
Yeah, and I, I agree with you that we need to have more of those ceremonial recognitions of different types of initiations, not yeah. just these spiritual ones, but I mean, birth is definitely can be a spiritual initiation, right? And becoming a mother and going through all those different stages um, of like, Right. Or, you know, someone who survives a car accident. I mean, I mean, all kinds of things. There are just so many things that happen that can, I mean, being attacked by a bear. Maybe I'll send you the a link to the story. This guy had a full initiation by being attacked by a bear. I'll send it to you. And so you can, you can see that there's so many different experiences, but we have to learn to understand as leaders of this work or trying to revive this work that's been lost to our culture. We have to know all that. That is not just a traumatic experience or an unfortunate one. That is an invitation to fulfill your destiny, your 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 purpose, mm. why you were born. Don't miss it. Right. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. And sharing this story with others and talking about the descent and the ascent helps people to recognize when they are going through that moment that is life-defining. That's exactly why we're doing this together today. Absolutely. We're, we're remembering a forgotten wisdom so that it becomes part of our modern, busy world. And we have to talk about this again. Yeah. You know? Because right now, I think I think trauma work is important, but I think I'm concerned that this uh, only talking about tra- trauma and that someone's been traumatized and it's in their nervous system and stopping there is creating another identity. And, I, and I'm concerned that the person might get stuck there at that gate, if you will, or not keep going. So I have a belief. I mean, I feel like I should be careful. I mean, I'm, I'm not really I'm not sure if I'm, I'm an expert on this. But I think when an initiation is complete, there is no trauma. In fact, I know if this is true. Why am I acting shy about it? I think when people have active trauma, their initiation is simply incomplete. And if they could keep going or get support to keep going, they would finish it. Absolutely. I, I just really believe that. I believe that too. We rush from this experience that almost transformed us, but it hasn't yet transformed us. It's just cracked us open. You understand that? Mm-hmm. I know. It's like a new, it's a new baby that just was born and like has its whole life ahead of them to like be recreated into a new person. There you go. That's exactly it. So to rush back, uh, which is what our culture wants us to do, we have to then have the wisdom to, um, to, to, to realize we're in a transitional moment and to be very conscious of it. Be careful what we write and what we say. Mm-hmm. Now, once we're restored, we have to go back to the village, as you will. They'd have to go through an ascent. Now, there are seven gates, and sometimes I think of it as there'll be more gates, but we go back up through those gates, and Biru is also there. The gatekeeper is always there behind a gate. Remember that the rule of a gate is you come from knowing. Now you know what happened to you. You know how you were traumatized. You know who wasn't there for you. 
you know what went wrong. You have the whole story, the blame, the shame, all of that, because you've just been cracked open. So we just have to accept that that's the beginning story. Okay. Right? It's not yeah, fair. So I should have Like going through the first gate is kind of just seeing your story, taking time to be with it. Well, maybe. But when you go through that first gate, Vito is going to ask you something. Now, knock, knock. What's he going to ask you? The same thing he asked you on the way down. Because this just happened to you, who are you? And you're probably going to say, I am proud, which is a problem, because you're not done yet. If you're saying that, you're not done. <laughs> you're still in the underworld. Or if you say, um, it's not there, I was victimized. No, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. Or if you're judging yourself. I should have done this. I shouldn't have done this. If I had done this, it wouldn't have happened. Any of those kinds of stories are on the first early gates, three, four, five gates. I don't know how many, right? So when you go through the first gate, knock, knock. Who are you? And Beto's going to listen to your story, which is either going to be, again, the proud thing, the victim thing, you know, somebody else. You're blaming somebody else, in other words. The judge, you're blaming yourself. The orphan, I was abandoned. No one was there for me. Are you following me? Those are all the parts of the early story. Mm. And that's normal. That's supposed to happen. It's okay it, it to have that as part of your story. It's okay to like... Yeah, it can't not be. Because because remember, you just said it so beautifully. You're newly born, so you're still in your child. So a child tells a story from... They, they tell it from a child's point of view. Mm. They either blame other people, or maybe you blame yourself, or you feel ashamed, or you feel real proud, you know, or you feel abandoned. Those are the kinds of things... We are early stories. Mm -hmm. So we have to go through those phases. It's unavoidable. You can't just go from being fed the water and food of life to being enlightened. It just doesn't work that way after you've just been stripped and dismembered. So as you're put back together, you're trying to figure it out. <clears throat> the only way you can figure it out in the beginning <clears throat> is by using, excuse me, <clears throat> is by using the same story format you had when you went down. But there's another story format that you have the potential to access, but just not yet. <clears throat> so as you're going through the first gate, he'll say, Bidu, so much. it's like self-inquiry. It's a self-inquiry process. Remember that on the so this side of the first gate, you're still in the liminal place. You're betwixt and between. You don't know who, you don't really know what just happened. Your story is usually chaotic. It's not sequenced in time or logic yet. It can't be, because remember, it was a hurricane, and you were in the middle, and things are not put in order for weeks. Now, the final, the final completion of the initiation could take years, but the sequencing is usually, it's a biological thing. It's not an intentional thing. Hmm. Sequencing is, you know, when something happens, and you can't quite remember what happened first, and you usually you're asking somebody, well, when did that happen? Well, when did you arrive? You, you know how you do that after something unexpected happens? Mm, yes. Yeah, so that's called sequencing. and but So that takes about three weeks for the brain to do it. It's not something you do, like, on purpose. It just happens. Mm. But you help them by asking those kinds of questions. So the story is chaotic at the first gate. And you start, knock, knock. <laughs> okay, back to that. And Beatle says, well, who are you? And you're like, I don't know. Um, and then, so th then you start to search. You know, 
be more or less a, a child's answer or a social answer. Um, well, I'm a this or I'm a that or I feel this way or something kind of superficial, really. But it's usually within one of those four stories I just outlined, those four archetypes of um, the child. And in order to pass through the gate, remember, you have to give something up. That's the rule. The ancient rule. So there goes the first sacrifice. Now, some people never even get to the first gate, through the first gate, because they won't give anything up. So you have to, this is, people getting into some serious territory here. <laughs> so let's say your first gate is the orphan. You know, let's just say, you know, nobody showed up for me, or this person didn't show up for me, or nobody saw me, nobody cared about me. I was all alone, I had to do it all myself. And you're going to hold on to that, right? <clears throat> well, if you really look at the story more carefully, you begin to see exceptions to that rule, or also that maybe you partook in that because you didn't ask for help, because you have a rule that you were not supposed to ask for help, so you co-created not being helped by not asking for it or not receiving it. This is where you start to grow up on the way back. So the sacrifice at this gate, so you're not going to trip through these gates in a week. Huh? No, this could take years, as you said. Vito says, well, I'm going to take that story from you, or I'm going to take that belief from you, or I'm going to take that uh, perception from you. And uh, maybe he'll shine a light and say, what about this? What about this moment? What about this person? Or what about this moment where you said, um, if I ask for help, it will mean I'm weak. So what you're, ex what you're leaving at this gate is the belief, two beliefs, two beliefs. Always two. They come in pairs. The childhood belief is, to be strong, I have to do it myself. We're conditioned this way from all kinds of different ways. The second belief is, um, nobody helped me. Nobody cares about me. Those two would go together. But if you keep going, it's like, but if I asked for help, I would have been weak. So you see how self-inquiry begins to show you this thread in your mind with knots in it. And as an adult who's just been initiated or potentially initiated, not, not, it's an incomplete initiation right now, you have to untie those knots. And that takes a little while. And it takes a little humility to admit that I partook in this. I partook in this. It didn't happen to me. Because of my conditioning, I co-created it. And then to feel sorrow for yourself that you've lived so much of your life alone and not in community because of that belief. And then to make a new agreement, I'm going to practice receiving help, asking for help, seeing how good it feels, letting people help me. So you're, this is your sacrifice. And you give to Bido, you know, this old belief, or you give to him the the contract that I'm going to make an effort this week to ask for help ten times. Beto says, thank you for that. Thank you for that barley cake or whatever symbol you want to make it. Thank you for that. And he'll let you go through. Now as you're going through, you think of another part of your story. Because stories are like the experience of your ordeal, whatever it was, has all these little moments like beads on a necklace. 
Oh, now you're tripping along, getting up, going to go back to your life. Oh, now this other memory, this other piece of your story, this relationship, this decision you made or couldn't make, whatever it was, you see, comes up. Knock, knock. Who are you? When you think of this moment in your ordeal, who are you? Who are you now? Who were you when you made this? Who are you now? And Bidu is asking you. And you say, I am, and it's a belief about yourself, an assumption, an identity, a role, whatever it is. And he says, well, he opens the door and he takes something from you. He takes one of those things from you. But you can't actually pass. Because now you have to go through self-inquiry again. So you sit down on the bench, you go, okay, <laughs> you know. So you're judging yourself. And you learn to judge yourself for this, this thing you did or didn't do when you were a kid. Whatever you're judging yourself for in this adult ordeal, you learn to do that judging when you were a child. It didn't come up because this happened to you. You've been doing it all your life. Only this ordeal was so intense, you're finally seeing what you do. But you've always done it. Only this time it mattered. Or this time you're more mature. Or this time, whatever. But what I'm saying, the ordeal doesn't make you judge yourself. The judgment was already there. This is what's really important to, to notice. And now your question is, will you change this judgment? And if you say yes, Beta will let you pass. Give him the old one. Create a new one because you're an adult now. Now you can go to the next gate. You see how that works? Yes, absolutely. It's like a shedding of your old identity and your false mm -hmm. beliefs and your <clears throat> judgments of yourself and judgments of others. And each gate is something new, something different. And depending on how many of these that you carry, you have many gates to go up through. It's not like it's going to end at seven, you know. Well, actually, for each story, though, even though you have a millions, an unknowable amount of agreements, usually in our deal we'll, we'll present just a couple come up their surface mm -hmm. that are particularly important to this particular initiation. Not not millions, just just a couple. Mm -hmm. So that's comforting. Yeah, because I. When I've worked with when I've worked with people, there's usually just a couple. It's, it's not it's not millions, or we would never finish an initiation in our lifetime. But what happens in the underworld, you leave in the underworld. And if you take if you try to rush up through those gates, you'll be commiserating about this for the rest of your life. You know, blaming others, blaming yourself, um, feeling victimized. Um, and uh, and not really realizing that that was an invitation for for personal growth, for spiritual growth. So if you can, but you can't just leave it in the underworld. You actually have to untie the knots. It's a process of consciously untying it from you and leaving it. You can't just say I'm going to leave it because you won't. We all know we won't. And that's what takes a while during this return. And during the return, if you have someone you can work with while you're doing it, it's very helpful. Um, or you can have a certain time each week as you're going through your gates, you know, your stories, and you're on, you're, on, you're, you're dismembering your stories, you're disrobing your stories almost, right? 
you're taking some, and you can symbolically think, what is the symbol for this part of my story, my belief, my my judgment, my my what is it? And you might even create a symbol for it, make one, draw one, sculpt one, and leave it in a basket. So it's like a ritual of consciously, okay, I'm, and when and what will happen over time, and I know because I did it. Um your story becomes lighter and lighter. And almost the things that were traumatic, if you will, or shocking or aversive to you, almost become funny. But they certainly become blessings because they let you see yourself, see the truth. When you get through these gates, how do you know you're through them? Well, so you start off in these child stories and eventually you get to this place where you're what I call the gate of the huntress, which is an archetype that I really love. Um, there's different, if you look up huntress and archetypes, there's probably different different explanations of the huntress. My own personal one is it's the part of me that that tracks my my story about me, my you know, it goes inside in it. It's so hungry to answer a question. It's so hungry for truth or growth that I'm motivated to to know myself. So it's a question that I ask myself about um, that brings me to to a, to a to freedom, personal freedom, I guess, wholeness. Mm-hmm. And then it gets, the story keeps getting lighter and lighter and more and more expanded. And more and more meaningful, you finding meaning. The huntress is seeking meaning, really. Yeah. And then when you get to the next one, it, you come to self-love. No more self-blame. No more regrets. No more blaming others. It's gone. I mean, it really is gone, like forever. Like <laughs> sparing ink, it's gone. Because the other story, it just it, you left it in the underworld. It's not accessible to you anymore. And now you say, you you actually have a sense of, I'm really glad this happened because it helped me to know myself. I'm glad that this happened. I couldn't have done it to myself, but, you know, what a wonderful thing that because of this, I learned this, or I have, I made these friends, or I, I changed my career, or I, you know, whatever it is. I mean, there's so many things that can happen from it's just it, it, it. so then you come out and you look around and you realize you have gratitude for that experience. You realize that that experience was actually you know, brought you home here. It broke your heart, but now that it brought you home in a way that. You could have gone your whole life and still been hung up about something, and now you're not. Powerful. Yeah. Now, at this point, you're out. And when, here's the way you know you've come through the gates. The best way I can describe it is, if you check around symbolically, is there is there a single thread of regret or judgment or, you know, frustration or anything left hanging from my ribs or 
wherever you think it might be hanging from your biological body, <laughs> your skeleton. Is there a thread left anywhere of some rotting piece of meat from this story? You know, kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. You look around and you feel and you say, and you have no more urge to complain about the story or tell it to anybody or be righteous about it or proud of it. No more urge to do anything more with it. It is completely digested. The salt is completely dissolved in the water. You can't tell the salt from the water anymore. You're done. You're cooked. It's you. You are now the manifestation of that in initiation. Now, here's, here's the secret. In order to keep this gift you just got, and you paid for it with time and tears and real effort, it wasn't given to you. But in order to keep the, the blessing of this experience, the secret is you have to give it. But not by boasting about it or bragging about it or advising other people to do what you did or writing a proud story. No, no, no. It's just in very subtle ways, like, like when, when Anki took the dirt from underneath his nails because he crawled his way out of the underworld, and he made some little allies, and he sent them down to get Anana. So when you have the dirt under your nails, you have medicine. And every so often, someone will cross your path, and you'll have a kind word or a little metaphor or You'll know what to do to help, or you'll create a little ceremony. You'll be able to do that because they don't even know how you know to do that. You don't tell them your story and then do it. You just do it. Kind of like the like the Samaritan. Just do it and go on your way. Right. And that's how you know, because you no longer need someone to hear you or comfort you or agree with you. You're done. Now you can give from your story. And that's the whole idea of the Anana story. When she went back to Sumer, she was a more dynamic priestess, not, not the same one that, she, that left, but a wiser one. And people who haven't had her experience couldn't understand it anyway, so she didn't preach it. She didn't talk about it. She just lived it. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> and a beautiful story it is and thank you so much i truly feel like i have been able to converse with a wise woman and i'm grateful that you were able to come on the podcast today thank you so much for sharing this with us and i pray for all those that are listening that they are able to complete their initiation and come out on the other side and not get stuck at one of those um, stages. And if you feel like you're stuck right now, know that you can still make that progress. There is no need to lose hope. Well, you know, I would say at this moment, what you're saying is so beautiful and encouraging that um, when I, when my first initiation was after my cesarean shock, and it took me eight years before I came to that moment of realizing that I didn't have to heal my story. My story had healed me. It took me eight years of slowly untying the knots and figuring it out. 
So it can take a while. I've heard other people talk about years instead of like days or weeks. But if we don't know that this is possible, we might think we're lost and it's pointless. But this is why all of us who've done the work, if we just say a little bit about that, people will say, okay, I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many beautiful tools to pass through those gates and untie those knots. And I pray that if you were at one of those gates, one of those tools will come into your life that will help you to untie those knots and that you will find the greatest healers, um, whether it be ministering angels or um, individual people or healers or shamans or your spiritual divine team. There are so many ways to go through those gates and to heal and untie those knots and I pray that you find them. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review. If you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, you can make a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash inherimage. We hope you'll tune in next Sunday for another inspiring episode. Mm-hmm.